Uh, First John, uh, we'll start in chapter 2, verse 28, and we'll work through chapter 3, verse 3. Um, not long ago, I, I heard of an interview of a European diplomat who actually knew Adolf Hitler personally. And in this interview, as he describes Adolf Hitler, he describes him as this very powerful, sort of dominating character. And he actually said, uh, Adolf Hitler was such a, um, a very strong, he was such a strong leader that you could literally be blindfolded and he could walk into a room quietly. And just by him walking into the room, by, just by his sheer presence, you knew that he was in the room. That's the kind of person that he was. Uh, he also went on to say that this, he kind of had this electricity about him that really all great leaders have. And there was this sense of him like you either had really one of three responses to Hitler that if you walked in a room. Like if you were a German in those days and you were you in politics or in those days and you would have uh, been confronted by Hitler or if he would have walked on your turf, here's the three responses that you'd have. You'd either have to retire and flee from the country uh, you'd have to sell yourself to him, body and soul, or you'd assassinate him, or you would attempt to assassinate him. And that's the kind of aura that Hitler would portray. You were either for him, against him, or away from him. And here's the thing I want you to see about what this European diplomat, the way he describes Hitler, is the way he describes Hitler, he says, there is no moderate response to Hitler. You're either going to land in a place where you are for him, against him, or away from him. But there is no moderate response to Hitler. Now, interestingly enough, uh, in, in, on a more positive, more wonderful note, the way that John describes Jesus is that way. John describes Jesus in a way that he says, hey, Jesus is a person that I knew personally. I saw him in the flesh. I walked with him. And guess what? When you are confronted by Jesus... You cannot give him a moderate response. You are either for him, against him, or away from him. But there is no neutrality with Jesus. You're either with him or without him. And as we've said it over and over again in 1 John, John does not know of a relationship with Jesus that does not end up in radical life change. That's the, relate, that's, the, that's the Jesus that John knows, and that's the Jesus that John wants us to know and understand. Now, sadly, here in the South and in Christian culture, what we often hear is there is a moderate response that you can have to Jesus. There is this view that out there that says that um, you can uh, either know, there's people who are non-believers or people who are believers, and you can kind of land in the middle. You can kind of be on the fence in this sort of this middle person in between. And let me just pose to you that this idea is not biblical at all. But the idea kind of comes from this idea of like, okay, there's this middle person who is a Christian, but they don't act like it. Or there's this middle person that has eternal life promised to them, but they just miss out on the abundant life here on earth. Or the middle person is, they're going to heaven, um, but they live like hell. And that, to me, is just promoting a neutral response to Jesus. I've even heard sermons that... You can make Jesus your Savior, but not your Lord. And that's not even as if we could separate those two attributes of who God is. Now, the problem with this view is Scripture does not advocate a middle or a third person. You're either in the light or you're either in the darkness. And John does not talk about a dim room. He talks about light and darkness. He doesn't say, for those of you who are dim, he doesn't do that. 
He's not promoting this third person. Furthermore, this view, it can cause one to believe that Jesus has the power to save you from the sting of death and the penalty of hell, but he does not have the power to grow you in the gospel and sanctify you. So where you end up with this view of God, if you have this middle view of this neutral response to God, where you end up is God sort of asks you to come to the dance, and you joined him on the dance floor, but then you saw some, a prettier person to dance with, and now God is standing on the edge of the wall as a wallflower, hoping and begging and crossing his fingers that you're going to invite him back into the dance. And let me just say this, that is not a biblical view of God at all. It's not that the Holy Spirit has drawn you, to him, drawn you to favor with God, and then once you're saved, then the Holy Spirit takes a nap. That's not what he does. Uh, once you have a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, not only does he keep drawing you, but he keeps growing you in the gospel. So that there is no neutral response is what I'm trying to say. Jesus finishes the work that he starts in us. And so my goal today, and really for the next, for next week as well, is for us to explore this idea of you are a child of God or you're not. And if you are a child of God, there are certain character traits that you will carry. There are certain things that you will begin to display because the gospel is at work in your life. And so the next two weeks, we're going to look at these traits and how scripture displays what a child of God is And hopefully, for those of you who are in Christ, you would be encouraged because this would be your identity. But if you you are one who thinks that you're in Christ, but perhaps you're not, this would cause you to repent and believe the gospel for the first time. And maybe for those of you who are um, believers in Christ, maybe this will help you kind of understand people that you're interacting with and wondering if they really know Christ or not. Maybe this will help you kind of filter some of those questions or problems out so that you can love the people well that are in your life. And so John is going to help us navigate all of that as we look at it through the lenses of the gospel. So let's start with, if you will, in chapter 2, verse 28 of 1 John. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words up on the screen so you can follow along with us. John says this, and now little children, and so this is the title that he gives to believers as a whole. He calls believers little children. We've um, exhausted that point uh, through this series, but he says, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have, what's the word? Confidence. And do not shrink from him in shame at his coming. So notice what he says. He's talking about the second, when when Christ returns, his second coming here on earth, he says, this is what it means to be a child of God. He says, we're not going to shrink back at his coming. We're going to have confidence when he returns. Now, why does John write it this way? Well, we've got to remember that John is writing this letter to the churches spread out throughout Asia Minor, and he's telling them as an old man, this is what it means to follow Christ. And he knows at this point there's many false teachers are going to arise. And, and John knows that when false teachers arise, that's just signs that Jesus is going to come again. And guess what happens? Even in, even in John's day, John thought that Jesus would come at any moment because he had seen so much false teaching arise. He assumed Jesus could come at any time. 
And it's interesting when you see in the gospel writers and even in uh, the epistles and you see with Paul when he writes letters to the churches, Paul thought that Jesus would come at any time. He thought the same reason. False teachings are arising. It seems like things are getting worse. Jesus could come at any time. And actually, the way that Paul, when he describes the second coming of Christ, I want us to see this because he writes it to young Timothy who is um, pastoring uh, a church that Paul had formerly pastored in Ephesus. And what he tells him, listen, Timothy, I don't know when Jesus is going to return, but he's going to come. But before he returns, I want you to do this. I want you to preach the word. But now I want you to notice this morning, uh, Integrity, how Jesus is going to return. That's the way Paul talks about it here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. See what Paul just said to young Timothy? He said, listen, I don't know when Jesus is going to turn. It seems like it's going to be really soon. Uh, which is interesting that Paul and John both thought Jesus was come at any point, which is very telling for how we see things here in 2015, that he could probably come at any point again. But one thing he says, he's there, what Jesus, when he returns, one thing is certain, that he will judge the living and the dead. So what's he going to judge? It's going to judge our good works, our ability to memorize scripture, or whether or not we obey the law. What, what is he going to judge? What he's actually going to judge is whether or not we know Jesus. So when God sends his son back to earth to return, he, all that he matters at that point is what we know about the gospel. Is the gospel our only hope? Is the gospel the thing that we cling to with our life? For, for, so for those who are past and present, the living and the dead, who eagerly await his coming are those that Jesus died for. That's simply what he's saying. If Jesus died for you and you recognize that the cross of Christ was applied to you, then you have this eager expectation for his return. That you have confidence at his return. You are wondering and hoping that he returns. And for this reason, John says, if we're children of God, we have this confidence. We have this assurance. Because we, are, as believers in Christ, we have been positionally made right with God. Jesus Christ died in our place. He absorbed the wrath of sin. He absorbed all of our sins on the cross. And so therefore, we are positionally made right with God. And so we do not fear judgment. We do not fear the end. And we we realize that the end of this world is really the beginning of our eternal existence with God. And that's what we look for as believers. That's what it means to be a child of God. Now, for me, um, I think back to me never really fearing death until I had children. Like, I would fear the type of death, like the way that I would die. Like, I still, I feel, I'm frightened to death of dying of a shark attack. 
Like, I never want to die of a shark attack. I've always had this wonder, like, I grew up in the 80s where there was Jaws movies, and they just, like, I was scared of Jaws in my bathtub. Like, he was somehow going to get in my bathtub, and in the pool, I was like, what if there's, like, another little door that opens up, and Jaws is going to come out and eat my leg, and, like, and I, look, if Jaws kills me, I want him just to kill me, like, you know, bite my head off, and I'm done, but, like, I don't want him to, like, rip my limbs off, and me dying, bleeding, and I can't swim very well already, and, like, I'm watching my leg float to the top with blood going, like, I've thought about this a lot, you can tell. And, like, I, I am really worried about the type of death that I may face. I'm worried about a poisonous snake bite where a black mamba bites me, and I'm like, okay, I've only got, I think you have four hours until you have to have, like, the certain type. And I'm, I'm wondering, like, okay, is that going to happen to me? Am I going to die? Is that the way I'm going to go? I don't know. And so, like, the type of death worries me. But listen, death in and of itself, I, I was not afraid of. Like, I'm okay. Like, I feel like I'm secure in Christ. Now, until um, we had kids, mainly Jessica had our sons, um, I didn't mind dying at all. I was like, I'll go and share the gospel wherever. I'll go to a foreign country that's, you know, that, you know, I wasn't afraid of that. But now I do fear death in this way. I fear what I would leave behind. I fear, okay, I'm going to leave my, my wife and my two boys if something happens to me, so... Um, we're going to play football last weekend, you know, at the cookout. I was a little bit more reserved. That's my excuse anyway. Um, I was a little bit more reserved that I'm not going to do the crazy thing that I used to do because, look, I can't have a broken neck and be a good dad. I can't have a broken neck and be a good pastor. Like, I've got to think through things a little bit more um, clearly and less and more calculated. How's that? And because I'm afraid of what I'm going to leave behind. And like, that's my fear of death now. Like, I'm afraid, okay, I don't want to leave my boys. I don't leave my wife. I don't want to leave them without a father or a husband or a provider or a leader in the house. I don't want to, I don't want to do that. But, but listen, that, that's the part that I'm afraid of. But listen, what I'm not afraid of as a believer is what lies ahead. I'm not afraid of God looking at me and saying, why should you let me into my kingdom? Because I can say, if, I can't say Ben Tugwell did X, Y, and Z, and that's why, no. I can say, Jesus died in my place. I'm forgiven because of what Christ has done for me. And that's why I'm not afraid of the judgment of Jesus, of God coming and judging the living and the dead. Because I can say, yeah, if you judge me based on my work, I'm, I'm damned to hell. But if you look at what Jesus has done for me, it's different. It's different. No, I have this relationship with God. I have access to the Father through Jesus. So I don't worry about that judgment. I look forward to a better day. That's different. Now, do I fear death in the sense of what I might leave behind? Of course. But I shouldn't fear death for believers in Christ of what's ahead. And so a believer shouldn't fear death because what lies ahead? A believer is anxious to be with his father. That's what a child is. He has this ang- angst to see his father. And I think about it when I even take a long road trip and I come back from to home and my boys see me and I want to just pick them up and grab them and they tackle me when I walk in the door. There's an anxiety that they have. Dad is home. And that's the anxiety we should have. See our father, to see our father face to face that we have been his child and he's adopted us and we long to see this day. And it's not a day of judgment, it's a day of joy for those of us who believe. So that's what John is talking about here. But let me show you 
what he says next about what it means to be a child of God. He says this in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Now, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So we're positionally made right with God. We're called his children. And listen, from that, we will be marked by one who practices righteousness. Now, we're going to flesh this out a lot next week. But basically what John is saying is that one, a true child of God is going to begin to look like their father. That's what he's saying. Interestingly enough, John would have gotten the same idea from Jesus himself in John 8. John um, would have seen Jesus talking to crowds and crowds of people throughout uh, when, he, when he writes about in, God, in John's gospel. He writes about Jesus consistently being in front of crowds of people who are asking Jesus all these hard questions. Pharisees are there, Sadducees are there, religious elite are asking Jesus all these hard questions. And here you have Jesus in John chapter 8, the Jews who they began to be so angry at Jesus they want to kill him. But they think they're believers. They think that they, as a whole, have this relationship with Jesus. So they begin to um, kind of taunt Jesus, and they're rejecting. God is saying, no, you're rejecting me, and by rejecting me, you're rejecting God. And that would have caused a riot to happen. And so there's this dialogue and really this argument that happens between Jesus and the crowd. Because the crowd, the Jews, they thought they were in. They thought, man, we are in. We are Jews. We've grown up in church our whole life, right? We've grown up memorizing scripture. We know all the right Bible verses. We know all the Sunday school answers. And so here they, here they are arguing with Jesus. No, we know all the right answers. You don't know our hearts. You don't know where we, you know. And so, but Jesus is drawing this parallel. If you reject me, you reject my father. But now listen, this is what happens next. This is the relationship. This is the conversation, the dialogue that Jesus has with the Jews. Now, what it's going to show us is what does it mean to be a true child of God? Because they would have thought, I'm a child of God. I'm a Jew. But no, listen to what happens. John 8, 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had what? Believed him. So that sounds like they're in, right? Believer. Right? Okay, how do, how do you become a Christian? Believe. Believe in God. Right? You hear that all the time. That is not enough, script, biblically, and it wasn't even enough for Jesus. But look at what Jesus says. He said, um, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring to Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone, how is it that you say you will become free? So now we have this dialogue that begins. They believe, they think they believe, they think they're in. And then this is what Jesus says to them in verse 34. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a what? Slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Does that sound like a believer? 
I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do what you have heard from your father. So they're thinking, okay, he's talking about Abraham. This is why they answer. Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I have heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And so again, they're thinking Abraham. Abraham's our father. Abraham's our father. We're Jews. No. Then Then they said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. I am here. I came uh, not of my own accord, but he has sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. What did he say earlier? If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. Here he says, you can't bear my word. Then he says, I'll tell you who your father is. You are the father of the devil. You are of your father, the devil, and you will do his, uh, and, and your will is to do what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character has own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Now, that is very different than the way they would have thought that conversation would go. Our father's Abraham. We belong. We're your children because our father's Abraham. He goes, no, what makes you my children is that I am your father. And how I know if I'm your father, if you obey, if you abide in the word, and the word abides in you. But listen, you hate my word. That's what Jesus says. And because of that, you're doing what your father does, and your father's the devil, who also hates my word. And therefore, Jesus says, you do not believe me. And so what John is doing here in John 8, and what John is doing here in 1 John chapter 3, 2 and 3, he's given us this paradox. He's saying, if God is your father, you will love like he loved. If Satan is your father, you will walk in hate and deception. And this is why he says in the last verse of John chapter 2, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. He's basically saying, you're just doing what your father does. You're abiding in him. You're abiding in uh, Christ. That's what Jesus did to the father. Jesus became obedient to the father to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so what John is simply saying is, There's no neutrality. You have a father. And there's one of two options. You have a father who is God. You have a father who is Satan. And if if God is your father, you will love the things that he loves. His glory, his word. And you will hate the things that he hates. Namely sin. If Satan is your father, you will love the things that he loves. Sin, disobedience, rebellion toward God, uh, idolatry. If, if, you, if, you, if Satan is your father, you will hate the things that he hates. God and his glory. 
And your life will be marked by those things. And so what John is saying here simply, obedience is a guaranteed trait of knowing the Father. If you know the Father, you will desire to walk in obedience. That's the trait. That shows that you belong to the Father. Your life will be marked by that. And there's no neutrality. People will know that. How do we know if he loves the Father? He obeys his Father. He wants, he desires to love the things that his Father loves and hates the things that his Father hates. For me, um, there's this trait that every Tugwell man has. And um, if you look at any picture of me outside, I am, you can never get a picture of me outside where my eyes are open. Because Tugwell men have horrendous squinting issues outside. If you put me outside, I look like George W. Bush on a podium. I'm like, you know, like my eyes are all squinting. And you can't never, you can never get a picture of me outside. Because, I, like, I've got red hair and, like, fair skin. And so the sun in and of itself is, like, kryptonite to me. I just can't deal with it. And so if there's, like, family Easter picture, like, my kids and my wife are beautiful. And then I'm like, you know, like, I look like a drunk man in a picture. And it's like, that's what... All Tugwell men have. We ruin every picture as long, if it, as long as it's inside, we're okay. If we get outside, we ruin everybody's pictures. And my dad has it, and my brothers have it. We all have it. And I have never one time met my grandfather on my dad's side. He passed away before I was born. And, it, and, and back in those days, my, my, um, my grandfather um, grew up in a, as a poor tenant farmer. And so I didn't have, like, there wasn't like a ton of photos of my grandfather. So I was going through a photo album in my grandmother's house, and I saw this picture of my granddad. Now, how did I know that it was my granddad? Because he got a picture taken outside. And I'm like, okay, ridiculous squint. Ruins the picture. Can't even see his eyes. Don't even know what they look like. That's my granddad. Because it carries the trait. I carry the trait. He, he got it from, my dad got it from him, and I'm sure he got it from him. And then it just walks him through. Now my little boys, like now I'm starting to notice. Like there's this little squint. I'm like, oh no. You know, it's just, it didn't stop with me. You know, it's like, it's, it's going to continue. And like, that's what often happens. And there's this trait that follows through Tugwell men of, of just horrendous squinters. And that's the trait that we have. John is saying the trait that you will have because you belong to the Father, you're going to do what Jesus did. You're going to obey. You're going to walk in obedience to him. You're going to want to love him. You're going to want to serve him. You're going to want to abide in him. You're going to want to fight sin. You're going to want to honor Christ with your life. Because that's what Jesus did and that is what you are going to do. And so he's saying, if you practice righteousness, it's just evidence that you belong to him. Now, that doesn't mean that you're perfect, and I, wanna, I, wanna see, I want you to hear me. That does not mean that you're always going to obey in every situation. No. But it does mean that when you are bought with a price, you are an incurable God lover, and you're going to continually grow in your relationship with him. Now, I'm going to hit just a moment of why, what it means to be not perfect, but living in a world of sin uh, in just a minute. But I want to show you what John says next, the, very, the second part of chapter 3, verse 1. He says, so we're called children of God. And he says, the re- this is the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. 
So the guarantee that John has given us is that if we are really children of God and we're walking in this obedience, and obedience is this trade that we have with our lives, he's saying this is a guarantee. The world's going to hate you. Congratulations. I mean, that's even what you see, what Jesus says. Jesus says this to his disciples. When he talks to his disciples, he tells John and the rest, he says, if the world hates you, John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And what's he saying? There's an obedient life that a believer will have that the world will be threatened by. The gospel in itself is offensive. The gospel will threaten this world. And because of that, because they hated Jesus, they'll hate us, believers. Now, I want to clarify this, all right? Because I think it's important to know that Christians aren't always hated for the right reasons. Like, if you're walking in obedience to Christ and your life in and of itself is just threatening to a non-believer, if you're proclaiming the gospel in love and grace and truth and you offend someone that way, then you are doing a noble, wonderful thing and that, that's the reason why the world might hate you. But if you're being hated because of ridiculous, um, antagonistic, sarcastic, cruel, arrogant Facebook post. That's not being persecuted, all right? If you're posting something that is antagonistic to an atheist or someone who does not share your view and your point is to stir up controversy and be difficult and kind of smart-alecky, listen, that, and then you don't get the likes that you want or someone says you're ridiculous and someone says you're cruel and you say, I'm being persecuted. No, you're being a jerk. Those are different things, all right? And I think about it this way. I see it all the time. Like I see, you know, think about the way that Christians respond to abortion. We often go to the abortion clinic and pick it, and we tell all the women who are going to make this really bad decision that they should not make. But the way that we tell them this is, you're disgusting. You're wrong. You're a murderer. You're a whore. And we do that, and we belittle them, and we put them down. No. And then they say, well, you need to leave this parking lot. You're saying, I'm being persecuted as a Christian. No, you're being an arrogant person. You're being judgmental. That's not what it means to be persecuted. What, it, what, what a better response, a gospel response to that would be to go to an abortion clinic and meet a girl who's going to make that decision and say, listen, please don't make this decision. Let me walk through life with you. Let me adopt your baby from you. Are you doing this because of financial reasons? Let me support you financially. Let me help you raise this child with the gospel in mind. That's a different approach. It's a more radical approach. It's more difficult. But that's what the gospel should call us to do. That kind of love. And if someone hates us for that, then yes, the world will hate you. Then yes, that's difficult. But listen, don't make the world hate you because you're cruel and insensitive and arrogant and prideful in the way that you present Christ. We got to present ourselves in grace and truth, yes, but we must do that with the love that Christ gave us. And by the way, we're never going to change someone by opposing our morality on their morality. Never works. What you'll do is end up with someone who's legalistic. 
No, you want someone to change because the gospel causes them to change. The gospel in and of itself causes them to repent and believe, the God, and believe in Christ, which is our only hope. That's what makes change. So we can't say, oh, I'm going to impose my morality on somebody by posting this Facebook post or meeting them somewhere and making them feel like, no, that's never going to work. That's never going to cause change. Only the gospel can make a change person. And this is why Peter says it so well. In 1 Peter three seventeen. he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good. It is that it should be God's will than for doing evil. He said, listen, if you're going to be persecuted, if you're going to suffer, make sure it's because you are being loving and gracious and sharing the gospel with boldness and living a life that is above reproach. Be, suffer for that reason. Don't, be, don't suffer because you're puffed up and arrogant. That's not being persecuted at all. That's missing the point. But John does give us this guarantee. He says, listen, if you're a, children of, if you're a child of God, you're going to love like Christ loved. Which means that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what Christ did for us. That means we extend that same grace to others. So we walk as his children. We obey. Which means that the world will often hate us. It will be, confuse the world. You, you know how many times I meet a couple who's not married yet but getting engaged. And their parents or their family just think, why don't you guys just live together? Why don't you guys start having sex now so you know what you're getting? No. And then the couple who loves Jesus, they say, no, you know what? We're going to live in purity. We're not going to live together. We're going to to stay pure. We're going to walk and um, save ourselves until that moment we get married. And, you know, I've seen that be one of the biggest things that people were persecuted over. Like, that's ridiculous. How are you going to know what it's like to be married if you're not living with them and having sex with them already? Like, you see that all the time. But that's, that's an example of, like, walking in Christ, in obedience to Christ, and how the world just thinks it's ridiculous. I mean, I could go on and on with lists and lists and how the world will hate you if you abide in him. But it's this obedient life that is threatening and confusing to the world if we really do walk in it. Now, let me show you how this obedience shows up more and more over time. Because... I want, to, I want you to hear me that being a believer in Christ does not mean that you're perfect. I want you to hear that clearly. Uh, but it does mean that positionally, you were made right with God because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. It does mean that you're not a slave to sin. It does mean that you are not going to be um, known by your sin, but you'll be known by your love for Christ. But John says... It's going to tell us in just a moment that it doesn't mean that we'll never struggle with sin again. John's going to show us in a moment that if we say that we're without sin, we're a liar. And we're not going to practice the truth. And so he's going to help us with this tension here in verse 2. He says in chapter 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be what? Like him. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John introduces us to this concept that is beautiful. It's this concept of already and not yet. We already have our sins forgiven if we're believers. We're already positionally made right with God through the death of Jesus on the cross. We already have a guarantee that we will spend eternity with Christ. But guess what? We aren't there yet. 
We aren't there yet. Look at verse 2 again. He says, for this, um, beloved, we are God's children. So we have that. We, that's a guarantee. We are already there. We belong to him. That's already there. But then he gives this next phrase. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So are we perfect? No. That's what he's saying. We're already made right with God. We're already his child. But are we perfect? Has it come yet? When will it come? It will come at his next, at his second coming when he returns. That's when we'll be like him. Now, we're being perfected to be like him, but it will not be fully complete until Jesus returns and takes us, his bride, with him in glory forever and ever. Amen. But right now, you believer, me, believer in Christ, we're being perfected for that moment. And that will be made complete. So this means now, you are an incurable God lover, but you live in a world of sin. And you'll, you'll struggle with sin. You'll battle with pride. You'll battle with lust. You'll battle with disobedience because this is what John is saying. But you will not be marked by that. It will not be your identity. So we gaze upon Christ and his glory and our aim is when he comes again. Look at verse three. He says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is. John's not saying you're going to work to be pure before God. No, it's the Holy Spirit's work in your life. The Holy Spirit will continually make you more like him, but it won't be perfected until we see Christ in his glory. And this means the hope that we have is that we're going to grow in Christ. That's what he's saying. You're not perfect yet, but you're going to grow in Christ. The Holy Spirit is going to start the work that he started in you. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible is Philippians 1.6, it says, He who began a good work in you will finish it to the day to receive your inheritance in Christ Jesus. Awesome verse because it gives us this eternal hope that he is going to continually do this work that he started in you. But listen, John's going to say there's no neutrality here this morning. You either have God as your father or it's Satan. John tells us the difference. He says... If God is your father, you'll not be ashamed at his return. You'll eagerly await his return because that is when he finishes the work that he started in you and will be perfected at the point of his return. You have nothing to be ashamed of, believer. Then he says, how do we know he's the father? He says, you're going to carry the traits of his son, obedience. You're going to want to become obedient to the point that even Christ was obedient, that he was obedient to death, even death on the cross. You will be marked by your love for God and for others. Then he tells you another way that you, want to be, you will be his child. This is another trait. He says the world will hate you because you'll be, look different than the world. And so my question this morning is for us is when do we really feel this tension of knowing him? When do we really feel the tension of the world hating us? When do we feel like, okay, if Christ returned now, would I be ashamed or would I be relieved? In what ways do you carry the traits of a son? In what ways do you look different than the world? And I'm not talking about when I say look different than the world, the way you dress, 
what kind of music you listen to, what kind of translation of the Bible you use. No, I'm talking about your heart and which ways of your heart's direction going in against the grain of the world. Do you feel that tension in your life? How is your heart different than the world? And if you can't affirm these things, if, you can't, if, you're, if you're ashamed at his coming, if you don't carry the traits of his son, if, if, if the world does not in some way hate you because of this obedient life that you live and this uh, proclamation of the gospel in your life, then perhaps he's really not your father. And perhaps this morning you need to, for the first time ever, repent of your sins and believe in the gospel and the finished work of Christ because it is your only hope. So that's my hope for you if you are not a believer this morning. But for those of us who do believe, we have this assurance. We do not shrink at his coming. We, do, we will carry the traits of the Son. The world will hate us, which means our identity is not in this world, but it is in Christ. And then our, our hope is not in things of this world, but our hope is for a better day with him in glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's what it means to be a child of God. My hope this morning is that you are truly a child of God. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for calling us your children. It's nothing that we've done. It's all the finished work of Christ in our lives. Lord, I'm grateful that you will finish the work that you started in us. I'm grateful that the promise of the Holy Spirit that we will produce fruit and that we will endure till the end. I'm grateful that when we see you again, we do not shrink at your coming, but we have confidence and we have confidence because the work that you started in us will finally be perfected, will be like you. In addition to that, we no longer live in a world of sin, guilt, and shame. And Lord, so this is our hope. We long for a better day. And Lord, for those in this room who do not know you, would you cause them to repent and believe in the gospel? In Jesus' name, amen.